a listener production. Okay, are you recording? Are you recording? Howdy crew, you are listening to episode 14 of the Howie Games Artist Series Part A, featuring sports writer and broadcaster Robert Crash Craddock. They had a big blue in the commentary box. Richie Benno said, that is not out. And Bill Laurie kept on saying, no way, no, that's the art of playing a shot. And Bill went on and on about it. Love the way he held his Junior. ground. What other um, impersonations yeah. did you do? <laughs> what was Richie saying again? <laughs> Richie was saying, the no, Bill. no, Bill. <laughs> now, Crash, he has been at this caper for over 40 years and he is a gun. Absolutely elite. One of the best sports journos getting around. He is respected by those he is writing about and Everyone takes Crash's calls because he is genuine, warm and fair. I personally love reading Crash's work because there's a simplistic elegance to the way he writes. It's like you're sitting across from him in the pub over a beer and he's talking you through the story with his usual passion, colour and opinion thrown in. And because Crash has often interacted with his subject so many times over the years, he has a tremendous background and just weaving little stories about them that make you go, huh, I didn't know that about that person, as you read along. He is a multimedia operator these days too, Crash. Don't worry about that. You can see him on Backpage and Cricket Legends on Fox. You can hear him on the wireless on SEN. And, of course, you can read his articles in the paper. But from me to you, a quick story to illustrate why I reckon Crash is so good. When Shane Warne passed, Fox did a leading show prior to the public service at the MCG hosted by Jared Waitley and Crash. I was privileged enough to be asked to go on for a quick chat beforehand. Now, Crash, ever the professional, he rang me the day before and asked me to tell him some stories about working with Warnie. So in his words, mate, then I can ask you about those situations tomorrow night. We'll get some good stories and you'll be comfortable telling them on what's going to be a really, really tough night. He didn't have to do that, Crash. He could have just rolled up, asked the old generic questions, but he was prepared and he made me relaxed and feel comfortable on what, as he said, was going to always be a tough night. And that is why Crash is so good and so loved. Talking to Crash at the cricket during a test match in the media box about the day's big story or his thoughts on the day's play or where the match or selection is going to progress, that is a privilege I will always love. His passion for the game shines through. He leaves you thinking, I never thought about it that way. Sport and how it's written. Perfect, perfect for the artist series. Enjoy the storytelling of one of the greats, Robert Crash Craddock. Welcome to the Howie Games Artist Series, a man that writes about sport for a living. So he is an artist, he's been doing it for over 40 years, and he has the rare ability to write the truth about people, yet everybody still respects him and loves him. He is a much-loved figure in the Australian sporting landscape. I am thrilled to welcome this man to the Artist Series because I'm fascinated by what he does and the stories he's got to tell. Robert Crash Craddock, welcome to the Howie Games Artist Series. Crash, how are you? Hey, Howie, I'm I'm flattered and a bit nervous, mate. I'm I'm used to be the normally the one on the other side of the microphone asking, so it's uh, it's a bit daunting, yeah, happy to answer. But uh, I'm I'm very privileged, mate, to be to be joining you today. There's so much I want to ask you about. This will go to air a bit later, but I wanted to read you something back. I don't know how you go when people read stuff back to you that you've written crash. I, if I have to listen back to myself on TV or radio, I hate it. But as we're doing this, three days ago, a young man from Queensland by the name of Cameron Smith won the Open, the British Open, the 150th championship. And your article crash, your first two paragraphs to me says everything about you as an artist and a writer, because you summarise this man and what he's done in the space of well, I reckon about 50 words. I'll read it back to you. The headline says, Boy from Burbs has a few rough edges but the silkiest touch. Robert Craddock. 
At first glance, they seem the quaintest of odd couples. The world's oldest and most famous golf course and the kid from the Burbs of North Brisbane who likes, in no particular order, mullets, the Broncos, souped-up cars and state of origin. To me, you've grabbed Cameron Smith in 60 words and told me everything I can see and know about him, and that is a rare skill crash. Oh, thanks, Ellie. Uh, look, I must admit I was so energised when I wrote that story because this year I reckon we've had the two best stories of the century in Brisbane, and they are so similar. Ash yes. Barty and Cam Smith, you know who they were? They're small sports people who had to develop subtlety and they had to learn to kill you with the scalpel, not the sledgehammer. And they did it their own work and they were from middle class and, and, and you know, that no silver spoons in their family. So they're the stories that get me up and about. And uh, when I was writing that story, I was actually at one team, a golf club, his home club, and a lady walked past and said, gee, you hit that keyboard hard. <laughs> and the reason was I was just, I loved the narrative so much of the battler. And I was out there and all his mates, the old tradies turned up, they took a day off work. And, and a British Open winner from Wantima? Are you kidding me? Did it, and, and Howie, I swear to you, I looked out down the fairways where the veterans were playing. And, uh, you know, it's such an un, uh, just a, a lovely down-to-earth golf course. And I just thought, did it really happen, a kid from here, win the British Open? But I, I think the big occasions as a, as a journalist, you love to try and rise with them. That was an easy story to write because there was so much to his story. And people will hear from Crash's words now what he brings to his writing. There's so much passion and there's description. When I read it and you talk about his... Uh, his truck driver father, Des, and his mum, and Des is there. You're speaking to Des, and this is another reason why I brought it up. It must be a beautiful thing to see sporting events live and be with the heroes amidst the action crash, which we'll get to on your cricket tours. But now as a, as a, as a parent, to see you have the opportunity to discuss with his father what it means to him and how proud he must be about his son that must be a beautiful part of your job. Oh, it, it really is. And uh, it, especially when they come from such humble backgrounds. I mean, Des used to be a printer. Now he's a truckie. Uh, Sharon still works at Woolworths, his huh. camp's mum. She doesn't have to, but you know why she does it? Because she enjoys it. And it's the same with the Bardies. When do you ever hear from Rob and Josie? You don't. They, they love being in the background and... Uh, but what I've noticed a similar thread, Howie, that these kids weren't fussed over his kids. Like Cam, they got a plumbing pipe and they put Cam's little clubs in when he was a five-year-old. He followed Des around. <laughs> uh, and and the, the lies that one team up was so rough, Cam can get out of anywhere. And he says it on, even in America, he says, great golfers come to him and say, where do you get that short game? And he said, my little course when it was rough in uh, Brisbane I just learnt I could escape from anywhere. So, yeah, but it, the parental side of it eternally fascinates me. And what I've learnt is it's the ki it's the parents that are just so even and measured and down to earth. And they, I remember Pete Sampras, the great tennis player, his dad, you know, they barely ever saw him because he was just so down to earth behind the scenes. They're the kids that so often prosper. So before we get into your journey, Crash, 
because your name is intertwined with cricket. This year has been a really tough year for cricket. Australian cricket has lost two heroes that have been fathers and friends and brothers and just a part of the Australian fabric in Shane Warne and Andrew Simons. Now, you've covered both of those careers from the start, and we'll get to some Warney stories later. How do you go about writing the story of the end, the ultimate end, when you know these men, you have relationships, and I think it would be fair to say, especially with Andrew, real friendships with these men? Mm. Yeah, look, it, it is difficult. I mean, I found out, uh, Warney, it sort of was 1am on the internet, and I just walked downstairs to my back shed and started typing in, in a state of numbness, really, on his obituary. I didn't even make a phone call. And with Andrew, it was a Sunday morning, of course, and I just pulled the car over to the side of the road. Um, uh, I was scheduled to have breakfast with Tony Squires, our mate from the back page, and I rang mm. him and I said, mate, you won't believe what's happened. So it's distressing, and, and I think you're almost, you, you do feel numb, Howie, and uh, but in a, in a weird sort of way, writing their obituary right on the spot and trying to do them justice is almost a form of therapy. And, and with Andrew in particular, I had a, quite a complex relationship. But you won't believe this, but we uh, the cricket legends interview, which went around on Fox Sports uh, the day Andrew died. Welcome to Cricket Legends, Andrew. Thanks, Crash. Thanks for having me. I'm not sure I'm a legend, but uh, it's nice to be here. <laughs> hmm. That was recorded. Before that interview, we hadn't spoken for 11 years. We had a bit of a falling out on tour, and I can't even remember what it was for. Like, it was maybe, I think, because I had said he wasn't producing, and he did go through those patches where he didn't quite yes. produce, and uh, and then he gave us what I thought was the best of all the 44 Cricket Legends interviews we did. I felt Simons was the pick of them. But Howie, when I walked in the green room that day, I hadn't spoken to him for 11 years. Amazing, isn't it? And do you feel when you're writing the end story for someone like Shane or Andrew that meant so much to so many people, do you feel an extra responsibility to get the words right, to get the right stories, to get the right tone? Because... It, it was a it was a distressing time, and, and I read every word you wrote, and some of them made me cry. Those words, some of them made me laugh. I'm getting emotional when I think about it now. I'm sorry, mate. Um, no, that's but that's fine, the mate. power that what your articles can do in that yep. situation. It's a tremendous responsibility. It, it is, Howie. It really is. And with Andrew Simons, I had one core thought in it, and this simply had to get out that even though he had. Uh, some issues with the press over the years and, and a, a difficult relationship. His mates always loved him deeply and had his back. There were those six or seven guys in the dressing room, Hussey, Gilchrist, Hayden, Ponting, Buchanan, all those guys. He was just, they adored him. And, and I thought, when I sat down, I thought, the love for this guy from those, his mates, has to come across in my story. That's the prime thing. They have to know how loved he was with them. And then you realise, Howie, sometimes someone will just stand up and say it better than you wrote it. And at his funeral, uh, Jim Maher stood up, his great mate, and he explained that Simon's was, life was a fusion of so many contrasting forces. He said he could be the happiest man 
and the saddest man. He was the highest maintenance guy in the team and the lowest maintenance guy in the team. <laughs> he was the simplest guy. He was the most complex guy. And he did about six or seven of these contrasting things and I thought, you got him, Jimmy. And I said that to him after the eulogy. I said, that was Simo, a man of contradictions. And and then you'll find a little golden anecdote. And I felt, how if you said, sum him up in a story, I'd say there was the time when Andrew was asked to donate a day's fishing uh, to a, a charity auction in Brisbane mm-hmm. and he donated. He said, yeah, yeah, hunt a day's fishing with Andrew Simons, do it, yeah. And it was bought for 8000 by Andrew Simons, the mystery bidder. He <laughs> bought it because he wanted to go fishing with himself. He said, I don't quite need a partner. <laughs> but I just thought that got the man. As he said, yeah, you, you want, I can donate that. But then he thought, actually, I'd rather fish by myself. Yes. <laughs> well, that, that, so he that, bought it. He paid the acre in. That's Roy. Have you thought, the last question on this, I, I didn't expect it to come up like this, but have you thought about the summer and how it's going to be handled and how it's going to be covered from a print media point of view. I've thought about Boxing Day and how we will or won't do it on Fox Cricket because to me, Boxing Day, you you knew Shane. It was was his Christmas times a thousand, Boxing Day. He just loved it and and Roy made that first test hundred there. So I think that will be the most uplifting yet most difficult day of the Australian Test Summer. Oh, look, it really will. And and I think... You realise how irreplaceable they were, Howie, don't you? Mm. You know, like like Shane and his his big opinions and his colour and character and, as you say, Mr Boxing Day. I, I so hope we salute them because I, I was so touched by the way that Sky Sports saluted Warney yes. in England over the summer. Like, I can tell you this, Howie, no overseas cricketer in the history of the game who played in Australia, would ever been sent off in Australia the way that England sent off Warney. Were you staggered by it? I I just couldn't believe it. I thought it was was spine-chilling stuff, mate, you know. It it further reinforced to me the reach of the man. When they're naming media centres after him, I was the same. I was thinking, right, who from England? Would they name something after Beefy Botham? We loved him, but they're not naming something after him. No, no, no. It, It was extraordinary. And you realise that the fascination, however fascinated we were with Warney, it was matched by all the other nations, and mm. particularly England, because A, he loved them and he was sort of like the man every Englishman secretly wanted to be, but, mm. but just wasn't quite cavalier enough. <laughs> <laughs> so, so you crash. But you've talked about um, Cam Smith and Ash Barty and where they grew up. But what, where where were where were you? Where were you growing up? Were you a genius at English at school? Tell me about a young crash. No, I, I was a pl- plotter at school. My marks were only average, but I loved English. And you won't believe this, but my whole life changed the days. An eleven-year-old, we had a journey to the Courier Mail, where I'm sitting right now, <laughs> and um, they took us into the dark room, and. Back then, photos were developed in a sort of a, a solution where they'd put some cardboard in and it'd come to life. There'd be white cardboard, then suddenly there'd be a picture. And they said, can anyone identify who this footballer is? And I said, that's Jerry Fitzpatrick from Valleys. And the guy said, well done. And, and it just, I thought, this is me. This is what I want to be in life, you know, involved in this industry. So a weird thing happened. <laughs> 25 years later, when I came to work at the paper, I went down the bowels of the building 
really into the caramel coloured folders and musty sort of place. <laughs> and I found the photo that I'd looked at as an 11 year old. Yeah, the same photo. Yeah, yeah, and I kept it. And I took it out and I put it on my desk. And I, I remember this shot so vividly as a ch- child. I didn't even have to check. I thought, that's it. So uh, it took me about half a day to find, but I just. Because that was the – everyone's got a trigger where you find out what you want to do and the sight of that photo coming to life in this, and the alkaline solution, you know, being developed in the dark, <laughs> I thought, oh, that's that's what I want to do. <laughs> my, my kids will listen to this and they'll say, what, well, you couldn't just take a photo on your phone, but the times have changed, Crash, which I'll explore with you. So um, did you play much sport as a kid yourself? Yeah, I, I, I loved cricket and I was a wicket keeper, a third grade keeper, but – Howie, everyone, when you, you we think we're going to play for Australia when we're 11 years old and you have that moment when you realise you won't. Yep. And mine was when I was watching the news one night and Rod Marsh was talking about young wicketkeepers and he said, you can always tell a wicketkeeper that won't make it when he takes a step back. He's keeping to the spinners over the stumps and he takes a step backwards when he gets the ball because he's a bit scared. Yeah. And I craned my head towards the television and said, that's me, I'm done. <laughs> <laughs> so where, where, where was this? Where were you growing up? Uh, I grew up uh, north of Brisbane in a place called Caboolture and went to school in Redcliffe and got my first job at the Toowoomba Chronicle in Toowoomba and then arrived in Brisbane in 1982, which is 40 years ago this August. So it's just, uh, it's we're having a reunion. We're still old mates. We started a paper called The Daily Sun. Our first editor was John Hardigan, who became Boston News Limited. Yeah. So we, uh, I've been really lucky, Howie. It was a great era for newspapers. The game was expanding in the 1980s. You'd walk down the street and they were selling the Telegraph, the afternoon paper, final late quotes, the, the telly salesman would say on the <laughs> corner. So, yeah, that was a great era. So what was the first paper you worked on? The Toowoomba Chronicle. So, so, so you walked in there at what age? With what qualifications? I was a second-year journalism student and uh, I walked in there off the street because I heard there was a job going and you wouldn't believe it. I had four fumbles on the way to getting the job. I, I, I caught the bus from out of town where I was staying and they said the chief of staff's having a day off. Oh, so I went home. The next time I caught in, he was sick. The next day they were on strike <laughs> and, and I thought, that's it, this is a message I'm not meant to be. Then I thought... I've at least got to see this guy face to face and get rejected because that's all it'll do, but at least that'll make me feel better. So I came in the fourth day and I said, oh, I just hope there might be a job here for me. And the guy said, oh, all I could give you is three days a week. And I thought, what? I'm going to get three days a week? So I just thought it was the greatest thing ever. And it was a beautiful little paper to start because it was small enough so that you got to do everything but big enough so that I had a couple of guys above me who actually knew what they were doing, they could teach me. Mentoring is an issue in the game now, Howie, because newsrooms are so small. Um, You know, and I I feel for young journalists now that they're not quite getting the attention that they should just, you know, and, and, you know, it's a hard game. You know, I need Mm -hmm. mentoring. Uh, Ben Horn, our cricket writer at News Corp, is much younger than me. He mentors me half the time. His advice is great for me, huh. you know. So when you first start on, on that first paper, are you writing everything or are you straight into sport? Yeah, I, I, I was. And I remember the first day I started, Tracy Wickham, the Olympian, came to town and I had to interview her. And, yeah. and I just uh, thought, wow, you know. And I, I, I kept that story for years and years because it, it just sort of uh, – 
Oh, and I just thought, wow, I'm, I'm meeting an Olympian and just got my juices going. And, and the, that same day I had to write a, a film review of Mad Max, the first. <laughs> On the with same Mel day? Gibson. Yeah. <laughs> so I interviewed Tracy and then I went and saw Mad Max and Mel Gibson <laughs> and I thought, yeah, hey, I remember coming out of Bad Max thinking, this is the life. I'm not going to do anything else in my life but doing this. Well, I hope you gave it a positive review because it went on to be a reasonably big film, Bad no, Max. I can't. I, th- I, I said, this won't go far, this one. <laughs> <laughs> hey, mark it down, Howie, is one of the many mistakes I've made over the years, death riding Mad Max. When I used to say, and then I have to sit back and watch it, uh, you know, all, win all these awards. I said, it wasn't that good. <laughs> Back to Crash in a tick. Next up on the Artist Series, oh boy, oh boy, am I excited about this guest. This bloke, he used to play footy for Coburg in the VFL. Now he is a music god. I'm talking massive hits, massive concerts. His name is Vance Joy. Now, I haven't spoken to him yet, but it is happening this week. It is locked in. I can't wait. It will all be ready for your listening pleasure next Tuesday. Vance Joy, I tell you. Alrighty, let's get back to Crash. So explain to me, how's it, how, how does it work in the early 1980s Crash? Say um, say you're at a, a Shield game, for instance, and, and Queensland's playing. What does the day entail for you to get your article in the paper the next day in the early 80s? Well, it was this beautifully relaxed environment where you never had to file until after stumps. You had 9.30pm deadlines so you could watch the entire day's play, come home to the paper, take two hours to write your story and write one story alone. Now, Howie, if you said, how does that enhance your education as a cricket writer, we had selectors like John Benno calling in, former newspaper editor from Sydney, Richie's brother, sitting in the press box. So I would sometimes park myself next to him for two hours huh. and it, it enhanced your education of the game. I loved it, you know. I just let the game wash over me and, you know, I did four or five years of Sheffield Shield cricket before I did an away test and it was such right. good grounding because the game, it was so slow-paced. But, Howie, that was back in the days when each state was like a different country. We didn't get... The, the Sydney and Melbourne papers here until they arrived via mail three or four days later. There was no internet. So I always remember watching my mates in the mail room opening up the paper that, say, the Sydney Morning Herald, and they'd go, oh, and I'd say, what's the matter? You've been scooped, mate. You've been done. He said, yeah. And I said, what, today? And they go, no, last Monday. <laughs> <laughs> so... So what was – I want to get into the mechanics of this. What was your first big scoop that you can remember where you, you got the back page by Robert Craddock? Oh, it, it's – I had one and uh, I haven't had many over the years, so they stand <laughs> out now. <laughs> but I, I remember before the 1993 Ashes Tour, there was a big guessing game as to who the two, who the team would be. Right. And and I uh, – I, 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 and they picked it and they wouldn't announce it and someone leaked it to me and they leaked that Dean Jones was not on the tour and, right. and it was massive news that Matthew Hayden was in, Michael Slater was in 
And, and that was a big, big result for me because it was I, I did that tour. It was my first big tour. We were away for four and a half months on tour. Oh. Four and a half months. And, and I just remember, here's how I knew that the leak was right. The guy told me, the team, he said, I think you'll find this is the squad. And I thought, is he right or is he not? And I realised he'd given it to me in alphabetical order. Okay. Now, that is how the Cricket Australia prepares yes. teams. And if I said to you, name the Australian cricket team in alphabetical order, it'd take you half an hour. Like, oh, you know, you'd have to sit around. Whereas yes. he, he he just said it, I thought, he's reading that off a list, it's the team. So I got that one right and uh, haven't had many since, Howie. <laughs> <laughs> well, you must have done something right because, as you said, 40 years. Okay, so the, over 40 years you've learnt this. But encapsulate for me your writing – you're not writing colour now. You're writing an analysis of a day's play of the cricket, for instance. W- what is the key? How do you structure it? And when you're learning, do they send it back to you and say, no, you need to do this again for this reason? How, like, how does it work? Yeah. Well, I, I, I think um, it's changed so much over the years. It used to be nuts and bolts, Howie, like just very basic with the score. But now you try and tell them something they don't know. You know, start off with a, a strong angle. Or like I do a lot of opinion pieces and I try and yep. say something, grab their attention early, you know, and there's different ways of doing it. I, I, I'll tell you one thing that's that's uh, shaped my writing, Howie. Someone said to me in the 1980s that there's two things that people really love and that's anecdotes and trivia. Huh. You know, it's that if you can't tell them the really big story, tell them the really small one. Take them into the back room, you know. And I remember once being sent to do it. They said, can you do a feature story on the other side of Steve War? And this is the day when you had access to players. So I just rang him up and thought, where am I going to start with this? So I went to his hotel room and he had a photo of of his foster child. I think she was from Columbia beside his bed. And I said, who's that? And he said, oh, this girl I, I, I sponsor. And he said, I'm so worried about her. I'm hearing news reports. There's trouble over there. And it was just the softer side. And I thought, anecdotes, trivia, humanity. If you anchor, if you keep getting, if you try for that in your stories, it's not always possible, hmm. but it wins most of the time, you know? Um, that, and, you know, so, but it's hard to find though. You know, there's a, players are quite well protected now. You don't know them as well as you used to. And that's the thing that I love about your writing is there's that anecdote, there's that comparison, there's a he's comparing, you know, you might compare Pat Cummins back to Imran Khan in the day and I pick up a little story about Imran Khan as I go, Steve Waugh was, um, I work with Junior now who you tell Mark Waugh who never used to leave his hotel room, still doesn't leave his hotel room, where his <laughs> brother was the opposite. Steve was the, the, the tourist out there. Crash, I remember... Photos and articles. I'm taking a stab in the dark here with him and Mother Teresa. Were you there then? Yeah, exactly. I was. And and the reason that happened, Howie, was I did a little profile of Steve Waugh in Australia and it said people I personally would like to meet. And he said, just, oh, Mother Teresa. And we just so happened a month later we were leaving for India. I said, why don't I try and arrange that? And he said, yeah, yeah, do it. So when we got over there, Howie, he must have asked us seven times, how's Mother Teresa going? Because he was doing a tour diary. And we got to Calcutta and I was feeling the pressure. But a bellboy at our hotel had been raised by her. And he said, look, 
come to this church at this time and she'll be there at Mass. Wow. And so we had to leave at 5am in the morning and Steve was excited beyond belief. Like when Steve, Steve's, when ex- Steve's excited, he talks all the time and otherwise he's very quiet. And yes. he, on the, in the cab going there, he was so excited, like it was chatterbox and, and we got there and we met Mother Teresa and I always remember she had nothing on her feet. She had these tiny little upturned feet. It was so exciting shaking hands with Mother Teresa that we took a security guy with us uh, to look after Steve and he passed out. <laughs> <laughs> wow. So, so Steve and I were like we were suddenly the security guards for the security guard. <laughs> but it was just one of the one of the great things. I always remember um, in the in the foyer, Steve saying, uh, I said, who are, you, who are you rooming with? He said, oh, Pigeon McGrath. And he said, he's very excited by today too. And I said, oh, is he? He said, yeah. I said, I'm going to see Mother Teresa. And he said, who's Mother Teresa, mate? <laughs> That's what he said. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, but, but, it, but it was a great memory and, um, you know, there was a, you mentioned anecdotes and things. That, that, they were the stories I love writing about, Steve and Mark War, comparing them. Yeah. Like, as say, Mark didn't own a camera. Steve took 10,000 photos. Mark was a gambler. Steve wasn't. Steve loved sightseeing. Mark famously said, seen one castle, seen them all, you know. And <laughs> That's so junior. That's so junior. <laughs> and when when Steve's house was, uh, there was fires in the in the western suburbs closing in on Steve's house and I rang up Mark and I said, are you, are you joining me uh, out with the fire brigade? She said, mate, I'm not a fireman. Like, come on. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but they're, I, they're good lads, both of them, in, in different ways, but they gave us so much fun writing about them, the wars. They really did. Uh, and I still, you know, I, I can still <laughs> see Mark whipping the ball through mid-wicket. You know, it's it's oh, yeah. him and Damien Martin are as, is as pretty as I've seen in, oh, yeah. in cricket. So I love the stories, and this is exactly what I want to do on this podcast uh, crash, get an idea about the art of writing stories and then hear stories as we go. So back to the art side of it. You mentioned the first overseas tour you went on. Where was that to? Uh, I went, uh, the first big one was yep. the 1993 Ashes Tour, four and a half months long. And just before that, we went to New Zealand, which was where the whole Shane Warne thing took off. He was a phenomenon. And it was the Gatting Ball Tour of England and how he... Just the sight of that tour. I still remember in, in little county games, there'd be a hundred kids bowling leg spin <laughs> during the lunch break on the ground because you could come on the ground at county games because of Shane Warne. Like he, the, the whole country was obsessed by bowling leg spin because they'd seen the great first up Warnie, and so gee, it was a good time to be involved. Did you, you? You talked about going into Steve's room. Did you ever have the pleasure of just wandering into Warney's room? Yeah, yeah. Well, that's what you do. I, I remember one day, I think Mal Con wrote the story about, and it started off, Shane Warne is overweight and must get himself into condition. We'd all been thinking it, but in Mal being the great journal that he is, actually wrote it. It was a Saturday morning and you didn't even have to ask permission for media bosses to speak to the players back then in the early 90s. So I just rang up Warney and I said, I've been asked by my bosses to get a response to this. And he goes, huh, what? So he was asleep. And then <laughs> so he said, come up to my room in 15. So I came up and he read the story and he said, mate, I'll, I'll give you a response. This stuff about my diet and everything is complete rubbish. Uh, I, 
I just deny everything, you know what I mean? I'm very careful about what I do, blah, 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 blah. And then there was a, the doorbell rang and it was the room <laughs> service waiter and he had this filthy giant strawberry milkshake <laughs> and a t- and a rotten-looking toasted cheese sandwich and it was 11 o'clock in the morning out here. <laughs> <laughs> did, did, you, did you write the famous baked bean story? Yeah, I did. That was in, uh, in, in Chennai in 1998, but we were down talking to Errol Alcott, <laughs> the physio in the pool, and we said, look, we've got nothing for today, mate. Have you got, is there anything to it? He said, no, no, they're all fit and well. We chatted on. He said, listen, I've got to go. He said, I've got to send that fax to Cricket Australia about this urgent shipment of baked beans for Warney. And we said, what? And he, and <laughs> ding, he told ding, us. Ding, 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 <laughs> ding. <laughs> so so we, we, we just thought that was the best story ever. So we suitably dramatised it. And my, I think my lead paragraph was Australia is rushing uh, <laughs> a, a, an emergency shipment of baked beans to Chennai to save Shane Warne from the threat of undernourishment. <laughs> and how he initially, Warney said to us, yeah, put the story in, I need those beans. And then when it became enormous, and I think it was two baked bean companies, including Heinz, uh, set these massive shipments over, uh, Warney blew up and he rang us and said, you know, mate, you, you make me look like a buffoon, this is ridiculous. He said, I can't believe it. And, and so he gave us a little bit of a golfful. But when I went down to breakfast after he'd been given us a golfful, he had one of the cans of baked beans <laughs> open. <laughs> and you know what he did, Howie? What? He put it behind the teapot so I couldn't see it. <laughs> As if to say, I'm not giving you the pleasure of knowing that you agitated for this baked bean can. But he, um, it showed me how big Warney was. And I think six months later, he actually got a baked beans contract, a sponsorship yes. contract, Worth, I think, about 60 grand. So it was worthwhile in the end. But can I say this? Yes. Warney was so much colour and flavour on tour. I mean, all these stories, the baked bean story and, and all that, they, you look back with them with such tenderness and affection because he was a story like no other and a story every yeah. day, Howie. Yeah, he's, uh, he was a, he was one of a kind. I, we, um, we did, well, but before we get back to the ride, let's continue on the Warney theme. We did on uh, Come In Spinner, a show I was lucky enough to be involved with on Fox with with Kerry, a man I have tremendous love and respect for, and Shane, uh, post the day's play. Um, when you weren't doing your show with Jared, we'd do it one night a test match. And we rustled up Joe the cameraman who was working on the test match. And Warney had denied for 20 years that he'd, made the can't bowl, can't throw lines about Scotty Muller. And Joe the cameraman came on and said, no, 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 it was me. And Warney said, I told you, I told you, Howie, no one ever believes me. From what I was told, someone was telling me this the other day, that you you put this through a forensic examination (laughs) of the audio at the time crash. Yeah, well, it it was News Corp did. Uh, Malcon got it uh, assessed by voice experts and said it was not Warney's voice. Right. It was not Warney's voice. Can't bowl, can't throw, said to Scott Muller, as you said, from from somewhere. Tonight on A Current Affair with Shane Warne, Joe admits making that can't bowl, can't throw jibe about Muller during the second test against Pakistan in Hobart. 
I stand behind the camera for six hours during the day filming the cricket and it's just a comment that I was saying to another cameraman standing right next to me and an effects mic has picked it up. I know it's upset you, mate. Um, I apologise. You know, I've got to say, Howie, that was the most confusing story I ever covered. Was it? I couldn't get to the bottom of it because the morning after it, there used to be a distinguished newsreader called Arthur Higgins. Mm -hmm. I only ever heard from him once. He rang me and he said, Crash, I just want you to know this. I'm an expert on sound and the origins of it. And the can't throw, can't bowl comment definitely came from the press box. He said, it, he said, I don't believe it came down the line from a cameraman. He said, have you heard, ever heard another line from a cameraman on the broadcast? And, and I said, no, I can't remember it, Arthur. He said, no, it's, it, that came from the studio, mate, a fellow huh. commentator. So that's what I, so I was following up that line as well. And I taped it. And I listened to it a hundred times. Can't bowl, can't throw. It sort of sounded like warning, but I wasn't sure how we... I, yeah. I, and I still don't know. I, I have to say, like, we could get anyone in here and a lot of people say, it was warning, and other people say, no, it was Joe. I don't know. I still don't know. I'm confused. He was <laughs> he was vehement. Like he's, he, before we did the segment, I said, are you happy to do this? He's like, H... H, it was not me. Yeah, yeah. It was, I don't know who it was, but it wasn't me, H. So he was vehement well, about it. I'll just say this. W when you said that, you've taken me back in time to him t talking to Mike Horan, who was our newsman then, and I was listening when Mike, he was ringing Mike about it, and they were the same words. I could hear him shouting through the phone, it wasn't me. Yeah. You know, you could hear that. Yeah. And, and so he's held his line on it. I've yeah. got to say that. So, yeah. A absolutely. So on the early tours when you're overseas, pre-email, et cetera, tell me this, Crash, when you've got deadlines and, and stories to get back, how did it happen when you when you first started going on tour? How did your story end up in the newspaper? Well, you, you, would, you would do your story to computer, then you would put your phone in this couplet which would connect to a, a – you'd dial the number and connect to a computer in Sydney – and it would, you, honestly, Howie, the problems you would have from a country like India before the technological revolution, which has made it a pace setter in the world, it was a nightmare sometimes. I mean, I saw journalists have nervous breakdowns in India and I nearly had one myself, you know. Tell me about it. Tell me about it. Oh, j just where you might try 20 times to get through on a story right on deadline and you'd hear this boom. It's supposed to go like this. You go bing, bing, boom, and if you hear it, if, if it finished like that, shh, you'd be true. But if it just faded away, you wouldn't. And honestly, uh, you know, you, you would have situations where journalists would almost start crying and breaking down. And I, I, I went through all that. I was as bad as anyone, a, a nervous Nelly. But when you couldn't trust the communication system from overseas, and I had situations once in England where I accidentally left the phone off after sending the story and uh, I, I got a hotel. The phone stayed connected to Sydney for two days and I got a <laughs> phone bill for 1,600 quid. <laughs> so, well, so I thought, oh, so I was down the foyer saying, help, I can't pay that. I'll get sacked when I, when I uh, get home, you know. That is the end of Crash Part A. The stories are only getting bigger and better in Part B. 